Will you stand with us and let's sing together to God, to our God be the glory. We are glad you're here. Thanks for taking the time to be with us as we gather to worship God. I want to thank you for being here, especially if you're a guest. 
Uh, we'd love to get to know you a little better, and the way that we do that is by filling out a connection card in the back of the pew rack there. And at the end of the service, you can take that uh, up to the left towards the Welcome Center and uh, meet our pastor. We got a gift for uh, first-time guests and uh, just a simple way to, to get to know you and say thank you for being here. So we're excited to gather and worship and be in God's house together. So let's pray, and we'll continue. God, we thank you for your love for us, and we come this morning to worship you. We uh, give you praise and we come to hear from you and to experience your presence in our lives, to uh, hear from your word uh, and uh, just help us to listen and help us to worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are so grateful for the promises of God, the promises that he keeps. Will you stand and let's sing together. Promises.
trust in you, Lord. We can put our faith in you because you are trustworthy. Lord, I pray right now that you be with Dr. Cox as he comes and brings your message. May you be glorified through the words spoke today, the, the, the songs sung. May this all be to your glory and your glory alone. Open our ears and our hearts that we may hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you today. Glad you're here. Uh, glad to have guests with us today. I met some guests before our service this morning. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to First Baptist Church. Today is Compassion Sunday in our church. I want to share just a word about that with you. Diane Argraves is coming to share about it at the end of the service. She had a, a burden to do a Compassion Sunday in our church, but uh, I want to share, just add my voice to it. Uh, Compassion International sponsors kids, connects with local churches around the world. I've come to believe it's one of the best ways 
to make a difference in poverty. Some of us won't, we feel so blessed with all that God has given us and we want to help but we don't know how to help with the world. And I believe that sponsoring a child through Compassion is one of the best ways we could do that. We did a Compassion Sunday eight years ago. Cindy and I, along with others of you, began to sponsor a child. A little, we have a young man named Juan Emmanuel Oba in Indonesia. He was eight when we sponsored him. He's 16 now. And we did it again four years ago, and we had about 40 families uh, sponsor kids. I don't know how many of those are still doing that, but I know so many of you are already engaged in that. But if you're new in our church or if you've come to a point in your life where you think you might like to help, Diane Argraves will be in the parlor after the uh, service today with profiles of these uh, children. It's $38 a month to sponsor a child, connects them with after-school programs, books, uh, connected with a church, a Christian learning center, uh, to lift them out of poverty, give them a better life, and to tell them about Jesus. So I, I commend that to you. I know this is a year of inflation, and you may say, whoa, I am, I am maxed out. Everything costs more, and I understand that. It may not be something you can do now. Your first giving ought to go to God through your church. That's our priority. Uh, but if uh, you feel blessed and uh, want to help beyond that, uh, then uh, this is a way that I think makes a difference in the lives of kids. Today, I want to talk about what's wrong with our world. I think something's wrong with our world, don't you? Uh, even last night, I heard again of another shooting in Texas at an outlet mall, and a gunman uh, killed eight people, injured seven or more uh, yesterday. Uh, and what's wrong with our world? And, and what do we do to fix it? And we have all kind of theories that we need more laws, or we need less laws, or we need a new government program, or better education. And all of those partial solutions may have some merit, but folks, none of those things is going to fix what's wrong with our world, and none of those things will fix what's wrong with you and me. Because according to the Bible, the depth of our problem is a sin problem. It is personal sinfulness. It is rebellion against God. The Bible teaches us that God made every person, and every person is unique, valuable, worthy of respect, loved, significant. And we are to honor and cherish every human being because of that. But the Bible also tells us that we have all sinned, and that sin has permeated deep into our nature, and we are depraved. And that is the root of our problem. And today I want to share with you one verse of Scripture primarily. We'll look at a few others, but one verse. There are many times when we spend most of our time just in one verse. But there's some verses that are very significant, that, that just really need to be heard. And Jeremiah 17, 9, I think, is a verse like that. It's the verse we're going to look at today. And it summarizes the depth of the human sin problem. And how serious it is. Jeremiah 17 is a collection of individual verses. We know from later in the book that Jeremiah had a secretary, Baruch, who uh, uh, copied uh, his sermons, who was his amanuensis. But, uh, and, and so probably some of these are just a collection that Baruch has written down of Jeremiah's favorite themes of some highlights of his sermons, of something he preached over and over. And they're, they're sort of standalone verses, primarily in this chapter, uh, that are maybe his sermon summaries or, or, or Jeremiah's favorite quotes. 
And so I want to share with you today Jeremiah 17, 9. Let me read it entirely, and then we will break it down. The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? Let's look at each of those three lines. They tell us three things about the depth of our sin problem. Number one, it tells us that our sin problem is internal. It's internal. The first line of this verse says, the heart is deceitful above all things. So, uh, the heart in the Bible stands for your mind, your thinking, your will, your actions, your motives. It's your inner being. And what the Bible is saying here, what Jeremiah is saying is, your heart's not good. Your heart's a mess. Your heart, my heart, is deceitful above all things. So the sin problem cannot be fixed with programs or education or therapy because it is deeper than that. It is, goes to the very core of your and my inner being. The heart is deceitful above all things. The word deceitful there is the Hebrew word Yaakob, uh, Y-A-C-O-B. It's the same root as a name in the Bible, Jacob. Do you know the story of Jacob? Jacob was a trickster. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. That's what his name means. And uh, Jacob uh, deceived his father, and he stole the blessing that should have gone to his elder brother and got it for himself because his, his father was about blind. And when it came time to bless and bestow what probably would have been a double portion of the inheritance on the older brother, Jacob tricked his nearly blind father because his older brother was really hairy. And so he put goat skins on his arms and his neck, and he went up to his father, and he said, you don't sound like Esau, you sound like Jacob. And he held his arm, oh, but you got, you're definitely Esau, you got all that hair there. He was a trickster. That's what his very name means. And so this verse says, the heart is a Jacob above all things. Uh, that our hearts are, are deceitful, are tricksters above all things. Let me read you another one of these sermon summaries in, in chapter 17, verse 1. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool inscribed with a flint point. Your sin and mine is so deep on our hearts that it's like it's been etched there or inscribed there it, on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Uh, it's even affected their religion, he said, because it's inscribed on the tablets of their hearts. Our sin problem is internal. It goes really deep. Second, this verse tells us that our sin problem is incurable. It's incurable. The second line is, and beyond cure. The English Standard Version translates it, and desperately sick. Uh, terminally ill. So there's... No, you can't just turn over a new leaf. You can't, I'm, I'm going to do better. I'm not going to be involved in that as much. I'm, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm giving that up. I'm not going to lose my temper as much. I, I, I'm just going to do better. But the Bible says you're not going to be successful at that because your sin and mine is beyond cure. Sin leads to death. It's terminal. The wages of sin is death. And we're headed on a path to eternal death because our sin is going to take us there. The story of the flood makes the point of this line very well. Do you know the story of the flood in Genesis? <clears throat> in Genesis 6, it says that uh, 
the world became so wicked that God regretted he had made humankind and determined to, to wipe it clean and start over. That every thought of man's heart was continually upon evil. But there was this one man, Noah, who was righteous, the Bible says, and blameless, and walked with God. And so God determined to tell him to build an ark to save him and his family, nine people, and he's going to get rid of all this mess, all this sin, and start over. Got this one good guy, we're going to start over with him. Let him repopulate the earth, him and his family. And so that happens, the flood destroys everything, they come out of the ark in Genesis chapter 9. You can look it up when you get home. And Genesis 9 is they make a covenant there, and God puts a rainbow in the sky. I won't destroy the earth by water again. And do you know what happens in the latter half of that chapter? In the same chapter where they come out of the ark, going to start over, got the sin problem cured, right? Noah gets drunk. His sons sin against him so much so that it divides the family and Cain is cursed and sent away. That's in the same chapter. It, we don't even get one chapter in the Bible before things have fallen apart again. We started with the good people. Why? Because our sin, our heart is desperately wicked and beyond cure. And two chapters later is the Tower of Babel. Chapter 11, it's already where they have been scattered again because of human pride. I'm saying to you that no outward solution is going to cure sin. And um, it's beyond cure. The third thing that this verse tells us about our sin problem is that our sin problem is irrational. It, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. Often we hear, we see headlines now that say a senseless shooting, you know. We use the word senseless, senseless crime. This week, uh, before the shooting yesterday, there was uh, in Texas uh, a family that asked a guy who was shooting his gun next door to shoot on the other side of his property because their baby was trying to sleep, and he comes over and kills a whole bunch of them. You hear that story? Isn't that a, that's, what, is that logical? Is that rational? It's senseless. But in, much of our sin is senseless. Wasn't the sin of Adam and Eve sort of senseless? God said, I'm going to put you in a garden where everything is perfect. you got all your needs met. One tree, don't eat up. Eat anything else. Go and what do they do? They, they eat of that tree. Isn't that irrational? Who can understand it? Isn't much of our, is, isn't vandalism? Is that, does that make sense? I just want to destroy something irrational. I worked in a retail store when I was in college. And uh, I remember one day the boss caught this lady who was shoplifting. And, she, uh, and I was just watching. I was just an employee. But she was one of the richest women in the community, and, and, and I'm thinking, why did she do this? Was it just the thrill? You know, it, who can understand it? Augustine, in his book, Confessions, the Saint Augustine tells of he's coming to wrestle with his own sin problem, and he comes to realize how rational it is. He said that he uh, stole some pears from a neighbor's tree, a whole armload of pears, and he was so proud of himself, and he was running away, and then he thought, what am I going to do with all these pears? And he dumped them into a pig pen for the pigs to eat. And Augustine came to see that his life and his sin did not make sense. What about a, 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 a family, a guy who's got a great family and he has an affair and he destroys all that he has? Doesn't make sense, does it? Your sin and mine is 
irrational. Jeremiah 17, 9 is a verse you really need to know because this is not the viewpoint of our culture. This is a biblical worldview that gives us a biblical worldview that every person is to be respected, every person is created in the image of God, but every person is fatally flawed because our sin is internal, incurable, and irrational. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Now, when you get that, when you understand that, you have the foundation for a biblical worldview, and it has some implications in your life. Let me just suggest a, a, a few practical implications. When you understand Jeremiah 17, 9 and the depth of the human sin problem, uh, for example, uh, it'll keep you from placing ultimate trust in any human or any human institution. Because uh, our, our problem is not surface, it, it's internal. We got an election coming up in 2024, and I sort of dread another election cycle because, frankly, I think they become meaner and uh, more divisive in every cycle. And just one thing that I'll just share in advance before we get into it with, you, with us Christians. Listen, I, I believe that we ought to be involved in politics. I believe that, that elections matter. I, I believe that Christians ought to be great citizens. But no election will fix our problems. No politician is our savior. No government problem will get us out of our messes because the problem is deeper than that. It goes to the heart of the human heart. And the heart of our problem is the heart. And so we don't put ultimate hope or confidence in human leaders or institutions. This will help you when leaders fail you, when religious leaders fail you. It'll keep you from putting any human on a pedestal because humans are desperately wicked. And don't put, yes, follow good examples. Paul says, imitate me, follow models. But you don't put ultimate hope in any human leader because humans can fail you and your world won't be rocked when you understand this is the, ca the case of every human heart. When we understand this biblical worldview of the depth of the sin problem, it causes us to guard power and privilege. Uh, that's just a practical implication of this. In our church, when we count the money, we make sure there are two staff members, never a ministerial staff member, but two people who count the money. That's a biblical pattern that Paul initiated in 2 Corinthians when he was taking an offering there because we want to guard any power or privilege. Our nation has a system of government that has, if you had this in civics, we have three branches. You have the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, and no one of them has ultimate power. Why did they devise, our founding fathers devise our government that way? Because they understood a biblical worldview. They understood Jeremiah 17, 9. They knew the depth of the human sinfulness. And so ultimate power would not be placed in any one branch of government. And that makes it very frustrating for us. And we say, they can't get anything done. They'll do something and somebody vetoes it or overturns the law. And, oh, I just wish, you know, if we just had a king, we could just get all this stuff straightened out, you know. But there's such danger there. And because of the human sinfulness, there are checks and balances. Our government, I'm saying to you, is built upon this biblical worldview that there must be caution about power and privilege. 
Well, the human heart can't be reformed, but it can be replaced. And the human heart can't be reformed, but God can give us a new heart. So the only solution for the sin problem must come from without ourselves. It is not going to be in our own thinking, our institutions, our logic, our laws. It has to come from beyond us. And the good news is, that's hinted at in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, is that God can do radical heart surgery and take out your heart and give you a new heart. Let me read it to you in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. Another of these prophets said this promise. I will, God says, give them an undivided heart. And put a new spirit in them, I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Long before we'd ever come up with heart transplant surgery, God knew about spiritual heart transplant surgery. And he said, your heart is desperately wicked, beyond beyond cure, who can understand it? But I will do a radical transformation in you where I will take out that old heart and give you a new heart. We would say it this way. You come to faith in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of that promise, the sinless one, the only one who never sinned because he was not only fully human but fully God. And he came to earth to substitute for us and to take the penalty of our sin, which is death, died in our place and rose again. And if you repent of your sin, that is turn from it, and put your faith in Jesus, then a radical change takes place in your life, like heart transplant surgery, or like the New Testament phrase for it is regeneration. You are born again. It is so radical that God gives you new desires, new thoughts, new motives, new will he gives you a new heart and if you're wrestling with the problems in your life the solution for them comes from outside yourself in a total makeover that can only be accomplished by the sinless one Jesus Christ And if you're looking for a solution for our world, it is centered in the preaching of the gospel and evangelism and missions and the building of churches because any other effort will fall short of the depth of the problem of human sinfulness. I pray that today somebody would come to see that Jeremiah 17, 9 is me and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Many of you have already done that. So do you still, now I've got a new heart. Does that mean that there is not a heart that is desperately wicked in me? Does it mean that there's not this depth of a sin problem still in me? My answer to you is no, because even though you have a new heart with new motives, new desires, you still have the remnants of the old sin nature within you that war against it, and you will have that until your glorification. Now, not everybody would agree with what I've just said. There's a tradition of Christianity in the Wesleyan tradition that came from John and Charles Wesley, whom I have great respect for them and and the movement that they have uh, have spawned. But part of their uh, heritage in the holiness church movement, that is, churches of the Nazarene, Salvation Army, some free Methodist church movement would say that you can reach Christian perfection. That their view of sanctification, different from mine, that you reach Christian perfection. Not that you're sinless, but that you gain victory over all willful sin and that you can reach a place where you don't willfully sin anymore. 
And I disagree, and my answer to that respectfully is, would you just show me some nominees? I'd just like to meet one. Because it's not me, let me tell you. I haven't reached that place where I don't willfully sin. And I would, if, if, you, if you got somebody you want to nominate, I'd like to interview them. I, I'd just like to meet them. I just do not see that that's the case. But it's not just from my observation that I believe that. It's from Scripture. Let me share with you what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Now, those who believe in perfectionism would say that is describing Paul before he was saved. The debate among Christians is that this passage refer, is Paul talking about before he became a Christian or after? I think he's talking about, you read the whole context, things talking about after he became a Christian, there is still within him. He has a new heart. In my inner being, I delight. His motives, his will is to do God's uh, law, and that's mine. I've got a new heart, my motive and my desire to do that, but I still wage war against that old nature. He said, I find another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of law of sin. So there's still that battle in your life. And I believe that we as Christians still deal with the reality of Jeremiah 17, 9. We have a new nature. We don't have to live defeated lives. We can, we can overcome sin. We can live in power and victory. But we must always guard our hearts against the danger of overconfidence. Because my old sin nature is going to hold on until my glorification. When I put my faith in Jesus at conversion, I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'm not going to heaven. As I grow, I'm being saved from the power of sin. I can gain victory over addictions and over habits and over actions, but it is not till my glorification that I'll be saved from the very presence of sin when he completes my salvation. So we live in a place where we've got to guard. We as Christians still need to understand Jeremiah 17 and guard against overconfidence. Let me show you one more verse about that. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's right, written to Christians. The context before, he's given Old Testament examples of people who are in the covenant of Israel, and they fail, and he's saying, so you... Even though you've got a new heart and, and you can know victory, but just guard, guard your life against overconfidence. Set, set some boundaries. Be careful because there's that remnant of that old sin nature within you until you, you die. Billy Graham, as he was rising to fame as an, an evangelist, came to a series of meetings in Modesto, California, and he realized he needed to put some guardrails in place. He was getting criticism about the offerings and money. And so he sat down with Beverly Shea, Cliff Barras, Grady Wilson. And in a hotel room, they came up with the Modesto Manifesto. And they said, we will never handle the money. We're going to have an accounting. We'll never exaggerate numbers. We'll have somebody else count numbers. And he said, we will never uh, eat a meal, eat dinner alone with another woman who's not our wife. And uh, that was his way of recognizing we need to set some boundaries to protect in our lives because even as Christian leaders, there's that old sin nature within us there. We guard it, be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. 2017, Vice President Mike Pence 
made that his policy, quoted the Billy Graham rule, as it has come to be called, and he got great criticism from it. Oh, how, how arcane, how antiquated. But Mike Pence is a Christian who understands Jeremiah 17, 9, and was simply trying to say, I'm going to set some boundaries, not only for the protection of appearance in my life, but to protect me from temptation because the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, and who can understand it? Oddly enough, one more implication of understanding this biblical worldview is that I think when you understand Jeremiah 17, 9, you really show grace to people more in their sin. Because when you understand the sinfulness of your own heart, you're, you're able to show grace to other sinners. Had a staff member here at our church one time, won't tell you who it was, Great staff member, great guy. But he had this habit of dividing people into two camps of good guys and bad guys. And if you supported him, you're a good guy. If you agreed with him, you're a good guy. If you doubt him, oh, bad guy, you know, bad person. And I would talk to him and I would try to say, hey, and I would quote to him the, this line from Solzhenitsyn. You know who Alexander Solzhenitsyn is? Russian writer who. Uh, uh, was in the Russian army in World War II, came disillusioned and criticized communism, sent to prison, and still convinced of, of the basics of communism, but came in prison to, to Christian faith to see communism was wrong, put his faith in Jesus Christ, but he came to see, went through great torture and brutality, and at first saw all those uh, as the bad guys, and he was a good guy, and then he came to this quotation in the Gulag Archipelago, his great writing, the dividing line between good and evil passes not between political parties, not between nations, not between classes of people. The dividing line between good and evil passes through every human heart. There's some good, some evil in every human heart. So I'd quote that to the, our, the staff member, and I'd say, listen, you can't divide people into good and bad like that because the dividing line between good and evil passes through every human heart. We're all in the same boat, folks. We're all people who desire, deserve to die in the flood. We're all people who are incurable. And so it causes us never to excuse sin, Never to blame, but we, we're going to quit blaming other people and our parents and our education and our lack of whatever in our culture. And it's me. G.K. Chesterton said, what's wrong with the world? I am. Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Above all, what that should cause us to do is to see, i got to have a Savior. Someone outside myself who is more powerful than sin, I can never, never solve my greatest issues on my own. I run to 
Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, help us to have a worldview that conforms to the truth that you have shared in your word. Help us to be wise and discerning about sin. And so, Lord, I pray for a person who may be here today who has been blaming their problems on other people and institutions and government and, and ex-spouse and their parents. And uh, I pray, Lord, that we would come to see the problem lies in our own hearts and that we would confess our sin and be broken before you and turn from our sin and I pray that there would be those today who would get new hearts, new wills, new motives, new desires by the implantation of your Holy Spirit in our lives, regeneration. Oh God, I pray for that today. And then Lord, I pray for those of us who are Christians, that you will help us to live by this biblical worldview. Maybe we're in a conflict right now at work, or there's a conflict in our family, and we've, we've made people bad guys, and we're the good guys, and we just need to humble ourselves, Lord, and show grace because that dividing line passes through our heart. Maybe, Lord, we've been sort of overconfident in our lives and we're, we're sort of taking some risks in our lives that we should not take. And we're endangering our, relation, our fellowship to Jesus Christ by our actions. And God, I just pray that you would cause us to repent, to draw back to you and fellowship with you. And Father, maybe we've placed our hope in something other than you, and we come today to say we are hopeless, and our hope is in Jesus, your only Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song together. It's our song of celebration. It's also a song of invitation. Today, would you come and admit your sin? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. There'll be a decision counselor who would lead you in a prayer to have a heart transplant, have a new beginning in your life. We invite you to walk forward while we're singing. Maybe you've already done that. We'll just rejoice with you, celebrate with you. Maybe you want to come and pray about something in your life, about a danger point in your life where you've not been serious about holiness and you've been overconfident. Somebody will pray with you. You can come to me or you can pray on your own. God speaks to you. Would you come as we sing?
Good morning. I'm Diane Nora Graves, and I'm grateful for Dr. Cox giving me the opportunity to talk to you about the Compassion Sunday. Four years ago, we began sponsoring Ishmael from Tanzania, and he's been such a blessing for us. For $38 a month, you can connect a child to a church-based programs, education, any other needs that the center thinks that they need. And you can also send like an extra monetary gift, like a, for a birthday, Christmas, a child gift, a family gift. The staff will work with the family of the child to see what they need. Ishmael's first birthday that we got him, we sent the birthday gift, and he, the next letter he sent us, he said, thank you for the birthday gift. I bought concrete so our house would have a floor. So, I mean, it just broke my heart. I just got a letter this week said that for his birthday, this week, he, this year he bought a bag and some food and some pants. Um, I want to read scripture, 1 John 3, 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And then Luke 18, 16. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Like I said, you get to write letters, you, you know, back and forth. You can do it online or you can, you know, read, write. This was the last letter I got from him. It says, praise the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the letter. I hope you are fine together with your family. Also, I pray for you to God a long life. Please pray for me in my studies. I study class five. I do well, and I was in position two among 148 students. Please pray for me to God to succeed. I want to be a freight forwarder far away. Also, I like rice and meat food. What food do you like? I like one day to come and eat the food together with my family and your family. I pray for you. You are a precious person. I love you, my sponsor. Thank you for the good letter which you sent me. I'm happy to hear you. That's what it's all about. If that doesn't just, I tear up every time I get a, one from him. And in the video last week, we saw where the little girl was praying for a sponsor and didn't get one. And then finally when she got the sponsor, they were crying again. I have 17 packets in the parlor of children that have been waiting some over a year. Today I would like to invite you to share hope to a child in poverty through sponsorship. I'll be in the parlor after the service to answer any questions or assist you in sponsoring a child. Let's make a lot of mamas and some children cry some tears of joy if they got a sponsor. Thank you and I hope to see you in the Thank you, Diane. And so there are pictures, descriptions. You can pick a boy or girl. You go to the parlor. After any of our services, she'll be there. You can choose who you want to uh, see about sponsoring. Tim, thank you.
Just a couple of announcements. You'll uh, see there in the worship guide our CDP classes that are listed that are going on right now on Wednesday nights. Don't miss out on those. We just have a few weeks left. Um, you can see that VBS registration, VBS is a month away. So if you haven't registered your child, get that done. That is, again, uh, children all the way up through middle school. So we'd love to have your middle schoolers involved in that also. So there's some other important announcements in here, some other events coming up this week. Make sure to check out the dates and times and details about those. And again, uh, you can give your tithes and your offerings there on those boxes there on the back wall. And so let me close this out in prayer and then stop by the parlor as you're exiting out. Thank you. Father, we thank you for uh, just the chance to gather here today and, and uh, understand and view that our, that our hearts are sinful and we need you. And so we just say thank you for a new heart. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross to make that possible. Father, help us just to turn to you. God, we thank you for this chance to, to help people around the world and uh, pray that you soften our hearts toward uh, that possibility. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace, your kindness toward us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.